Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. Hello, everyone. Glad to have you here for another The Corner episode of our international series. Um, today, we're very, very happy to welcome our our new advisor at LaSource, um, Andrew Cox. Hi, Andy. Hi, Sam. How are you? Pretty good. Thank you. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Thanks for uh, inviting me to share my story with you. Um, and, and Well, thanks mainly for asking me to be part of the family, you know. Yeah, well, very, very proud and, and honored that you joined us a few weeks back now. So um, exciting, exciting stuff ahead of us. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. It's, um, I mean, we'll get into it in a second in terms of my journey, but obviously to re-engage with the industry through you guys, is uh, it, it makes for a fun year after the year we've all endured. So, um, you know, here's to looking forward. Nice. Nice. Well, t tell us a little bit about your journey for those those of us who those of you know our audience that doesn't know the big Andy Cox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for that big up. Um, so yeah. Well, let's start from the most recent past. So um, I was most recently employed by Stats Perform. Um, for for those of you who don't know who Stats Perform are, or um, the business I joined was was a, a merger between Perform Content, which was a B two B content business. Uh, owned by DAZN and Stats, which is, a, 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 I guess, a, a long-standing American sports, largely American sports data company. So those two companies came together through through a merger, uh, both businesses owned by Vista Equity Partners, um, uh, American tech fund, um, private equity. So um, I was part of the exec board there for a, a short period of time. And prior to that, I was with the Perform business for six or seven years. And, and really, my career story is... I guess inextricably linked to Opta and sports data. So Opta was acquired by Perform in 2013. And through the, the period of ownership uh, under Perform, I was managing director for Opta. Um, and prior to that, you know, I was director of strategic partnerships of that business when it when it was uh, both when it was loss making and then when it, it started to make money. Yep. Yeah, interesting. And I realized preparing that meeting that Opta was actually created in 1996. And you're going to hate me for it, but I was eight. France hadn't won, won the World Cup. <laughs> like, there were barely computers back then. <laughs> yeah, there was definitely computers. I was I was very slowly surfing the information superhighway in the 90s. Uh, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was definitely on the internet, but I was – this will be lost on you from a generational point of view, but I was asking Jeeves rather than asking Google all my questions. Does that mean anything to you? <laughs> no. <laughs> so okay, for my generation, I, you know, they'll remember. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a good place to start actually, because obviously, if we think about my career for for the last decade, it was Opta, and it was it was largely sports data. Um, but I had a ten year career before that, and and sports data was always the golden thread. But you know, I started out in the in the at the turn of the century, uh, kind of dot com bubble boom bubble, uh, and. Um, And I learned a phenomenal amount in those early years, um, uh, you know, from an entrepreneurial perspective, from a business startup point of view. Um, and it did start, you know, it, it genuinely did start in the in the last century. You know, I was 
um, if you don't mind me sharing that with you, I was, I was, I was, I was thinking about it in preparation for today. And you know, listen, I was always sport obsessed as a kid, you know, and, and and from a career point of view, desperate to get into sport. But but figured, figured in the nineties when, you know, when you were still a kid, and that, and I was and I was trying to think about my career. I was I was trying to work out how to get into sport, and figured it, you know, I'd reverse engineer into it somehow. Um, I was a I was a decent. Red Brick Uni. Um, I was doing a management degree, a consult, a business degree, and 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 you know the the pathway from there was accountancy and, and consultancy. And I guess, I guess as I was, I was you know thinking about making that step after after education, you know it, it would have felt. I guess we call it imposter syndrome now. But you know, you go into become a management or business consultant, you've not done any business, would have felt a, a little bit weird. So I was, I was. I was I was genuinely wanting to kind of you know get some work ex- experience under my belt, but I, but I wanted to get into sport, and and you're trying to find a way in, and and, and my story is a little bit of like fair and right place, right time. So so the, the short version is when I was at uni, the one thing I did to try and get a, a job after I left was was I, I dropped a note to a guy who worked at IMG, um, and and IMG I didn't I, I don't think I ever knew who they were really. It was a friend of a friend who knew somebody. And and I think we were even writing letters back then rather than emails to to find out um you know how to get a, a break into sport. And he shared some some guidance and it was useful but but it led to nothing. Um and, and then and then I, I I finished uni, I went and did um a few months in America. And when I came back, um I I, uh, I bumped into a former professional footballer who I'd played football with as a as a as a 16 year old he was just retiring from a f- professional career but he was playing amateur football and um and he was working for a sports.com a sports startup which was known as sports.com um and this was in a backwater east yorkshire town which is where I was brought up and he said why don't you come in you know we we we're basically collecting sports information from football matches we're writing about sports we're we're you know, throwing it on website. It was like a dream job for anybody uh, coming out of school, right? I mean, it, for, for, it was a dream for me, for my parents thinking, you know, what's, what, what turns yeah. are taking here? It, it wasn't so much, but, but it was genuinely like something that I could just fall into while I plotted my next move. Um, I went into that business. I spent two weeks in that company and very quickly realized that whilst I was a freelance sports writer, you know, producing some sports content. Uh, this business, this this tiny company had been um, acquired by a NASDAQ uh, business in, in CBS Sportsline. Um, it was it was their sort of foundational sports content agency that was going to allow them to launch websites throughout Europe. It was, it was kind of part-owned um, by Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan as part of the investment group. But ultimately, the, one of the biggest shows was IMG. <laughs> That's interesting that there were um, investors from the sports industry such a while back. I felt like it was a more of a recent trend and like yeah. athletes in Europe are, feels like are just getting to it, but it's actually comes back to the days of Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan. Well, you know, it's always the Americans that we follow, right? So, um, uh, you know, it was still ultimately an American venture and it was the American sports stars that were backing it, but, but yeah, it was, it was the IMG connection. So having, Having done next to nothing to try and get my foot into sport and, and done the one thing through IMG, um, it then turned out that this business was, was the headquarters anyway was was in Chiswick in London uh, in the IMG TWI offices. So, so you know, right place, right time, knowing a couple of people, um, you know, a, a, a great starting point for me. Nice, nice, super interesting. And so from there, you moved on to 
Mm. Well, no, I had a, I had a, I, I had a period, I had a period, um, I guess learning, learning the, the, the ropes, um, you know, sports.com was a, was a business that came and went in the blink of an eye, you know, within two years, a, a .com, but ultimately was creating lots of content and, um, the, the part of the business I was involved in was was trying to license that content to third parties as well as use that content for its own its own its own properties so so I got to learn very quickly about how the kind of sports content and uh, ecosystem worked from a commercial point of view back then it was all about ad sales uh, media sales from a, a website publishing perspective but from a licensing point of view you know the only thing we had really to lean on was was supplying data and content to newspapers for for print and and, and you know a little bit of broadcast. So, you know, this company um, that I got involved in was was really trying to um, you know having acquired content and created content. It was really trying to find ways to monetize that content in any which way, shape, or form. And 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 if you if you whistle through that ten year period, you know, the, the amount of digital change or the digital revolution we all lived through then. Um, from a content journey perspective, was was incredible. Um, you know, one of the earliest sort of recollections I've got is is maybe two thousand and one. You know, mobile phones started to become a thing. You know, a, a real thing in terms of text alerts and MMS like MMS alerts and, and WAP. For those of you that remember that, you know, and 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 the the bottom line was this was a new platform in which to you know sell content. You know, those premium rate text alerts that told you when PSG you know went ahead or, or Man United you know. They generated for the time like an incredible amount of money for the service providers, and they needed fast, real-time data. So, so linking that back to the type of content we were creating, um, I mean, that's my first, I guess, real deep dive into into the value of sports data. And then, and then from there, I moved uh, sports.com. Oh, one last thing about sports.com, um, you know, there was a couple of guys in in that business who I didn't work with at the time, but um, there's, a, there's a guy called Aidan Cooney. Who went on to be the main founder for for, for Opta, um, or the Opta that, that that we know today, and um, and actually Mark Locke and, and Alistair Flutter, who are guys associated to Genius Sports Group, um, they were they were both um, in the in the sports.com business as well. So, uh, 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 you know, an interesting um, alumni to, uh, to, yeah. to to interesting to be team up there for yeah back in the days. Yeah, well, considering we were ostensibly a sports data business, uh, we all we all gravitated to that to that field. So. So yeah, so then, so then one thing that's very interesting about what you're saying, you've always been in the industry of creating one piece of content one time and selling it multiple times. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we used to joke about it actually that you know even 10, 15 years on, a lot of the time the data that you're selling or you you you're packaging or propositioning around is still the same content that it was 20 years ago. So Opta, you know, is 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 known for creating. Um, you know, a unique brand of performance data, and that's that's something that that set it apart from its peers, and and, and still now from a um, a, a data quality and, and depth perspective, um, it did before before many others. But actually, when it came down to it, um, you know, oftentimes it was still the live scores, it was still the score, it was still the the top level information that was the starting point for anyone's investment in data, and you might just be packaging that same content up. Uh, but with a very different use case in mind, you know whether it's for betting or performance analysis or for you know media general general news. So yeah, so um, you know definitely definitely about scale, definitely about trying to you know make the content you create work as hard as possible. Yeah, and so that's also super interesting because 
originally the Opta founding team, you know, even you guys joining in later, but the passion wasn't about the data necessarily like people might have thought about. It was about seeing an opportunity that something was undersold and that could be sold in multiple ways. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, I wouldn't want to do the guys that founded Optra a disservice because they were absolutely passionate about the data and, and we'll go on to kind of how they started out and, uh, and ultimately kind of created the business that they did. But for, for me, I mean, yeah, it was, it was, you know, there was a, there was a method of, of, of collecting data, which was very manual and, uh, you know, telephones at events, you know, supplying content, copy takers, listening to a reporter and, and keying it into your computer. But, but obviously technology, you know, both in terms of how that information was communicated was, was evolving and changing. And it was less about for us or, or certainly me within that, that 10 year period, um, 2000, 2010, it was, we can create new content, uh, quicker, faster, deliver it, you know, through feeds in ways that we hadn't been able to do before. We can chunk it down. We used to say that in the past, in the 90s, it was all about like one single feed and the customer had to extract what they wanted. We were we were able to chop up the content in lots of different ways, but we were essentially taking the same content and just trying to make it work hard and finding new uh, use cases. Um, mm-hmm. That is different to Opta. I mean, Opta, you know, started out by going, right, look, there's just a better way and, and uh, of collecting data in terms of the depth, um, mm-hmm. which will create new storage, which will create new content. Um, and that's the journey they went on. Great. And so you actually came in, so there were people passionate about data. You had an idea of how to sell the actual content and actually organize it in such a way that it had created more value and was better for the end user. Um, so you actually brought the real business aspect of things to the data industry. Is that Would that be fair to say? Yeah. I mean myself amongst others you know the the, the, the opta business um you know the the, the short version of, of of their sort of foundation was opta in the uk um initially was a was an index so it it was a sky owned business um the first um the, the first kind of uh, use of that content that Opta was collecting was a very arbitrary rank of footballers uh, and, and, and performance measurements, and it was it was a sponsorship model, if I remember. Um, Carling, as a as a beer brand in the UK, would sponsor the Carling Opta Index, and I think Orange for rugby, the Orange Opta Index. So, so these were th- th- this was a set of guys housed within the Sky business um, who were collecting data to create that index. And and, and I think they realized, um, you know, that actually it was the data that was more interesting than the index. The index could be, you know, throw away, you know, content that people either engage with or, or didn't really believe in, depending on who was top of the index at any given moment. Yeah. But actually the, the depth of content, the, te- the depth of data that was allowing that index to be created in, in its own sort of right as raw material was, was just interesting. So you were building basically this, this brand new, this unique database of, of metrics for football and rugby and, and then lastly cricket that had just never been collected before. Now, I guess it's a, a good example of a build it and they will come kind of mentality, you know, this belief that this data that was being acquired and, and you know, it wasn't a cheap endeavour, but, you know, it was going to lead somewhere. And Aidan, I've mentioned already, you know, Aidan Cooney, he grabbed all the, the Opta brand and, and that business in 2002, um, you know, and did a phenomenal job in, in kind of incubating that, that passion for data 
Um, and, and then, you know, as, as a front man for that business, you know, did a, did a great job in, in, in kind of perpetuating interest from the various sectors to, to what it could do for them. And, uh, you know, and I joined, you know, much later on and, 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 you know, just supported them on their journey. Yeah. Interesting. And so back in the early days of that journey, how did you actually capture the data? Right. Because between gathering the feeds, the software to be able to gather it in an accurate way, like what was the initial step? knowing that there was, there is obviously still an ongoing evolution of data capturing uh, that is less and less uh, a man's work, but more and more automated. Like, what did it look like in the early days of capturing data? Yeah, so, um, yeah, fun times. Um, yeah, so I've, I've already referenced, like, the business I joined, we had lots of telephones, lots of copy takers, people attending events and ringing that information through. Um Optus method. Like literally, how, like how? Like they were literally writing it down, sending it across through message, like whatever system, <clears> like a completely bespoke workflow of sending some type of data across. Yeah. So, so, so that business, and again, I, I'm not going to say this was Optus because people string me up who were in that was They didn't do this. They weren't that crazy. So, my old business, we, we cre created our own database to, to obviously store the information, but we would have a network of correspondents attending matches. They would sit in the press room. Um, uh, they would, they would, when a yellow card happened in a football match, they would be ringing us up. We would do this across all of UK football. Um, we would do it. Um, in fact, at the time, we were doing some European football as well. But this is like late nineties, early two thousands. Um, and we were, we were employing people back in the office to key that information in over the headset, and then at full time. There would be a, a, a kind of a, a, a QA against what they'd heard in real time versus what they'd actually collected, and at that point you would get um, you know how many shots has there been, how many yellow cards have the, you know you've already, you know how many times did you hit the woodwork, um, and and but listen as a kid you know this, these are the stats that I remember in the eighties and nineties growing up like yeah. that was the information for football and and this is the thing so Opta you know, realized that there was far more to a football match than that. And there was no there was no way from a collection point of view in those early days that they were going to be able to do that in real time. Mm -hmm. You know, their their method um was still very manual. Um, you know, we, we clearly weren't in the age of computer vision back then. So, you know, it was a similar kind of um human method of capture, but it was much more intense in terms of tracking the ball event. So rather than just taking the key the key data um, at intervals, it was literally using guys with amazing hand-eye coordination who had a you know absolute depth of football knowledge and cricket knowledge. I remember to basically watch a game, watch the video stream from a, from an office rather than at the venue, um, and and basically track the ball and follow the ball and in 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 real time in terms of how they're watching it, put that information into the system, but up to Opta did that post-match in the hours after games right through until um, for the really deep XY coordinates, which is kind of where the things happen on the pitch. That, that only became a, a, a kind of a real-time collection system. I think it was around 2006. So, so a much more intense method, uh, but there's a trade-off there between speed and, and, and accuracy. Um, yeah. Which one was the most important, actually, to clients, speed or accuracy? Hmm. It's a great question because you know, the Opta business in those days were was was looking at the media sector as its as its first kind of priority. Um, there was a there was a business called Prozone in the UK um, which was was 
more driven by um, you know the, the tactical analysis and performance analysis on the pro side. So that was that was a business that had gone after pro, and then you had um, the running ball business, which became a part of the perform group. So the running ball sports data business in the mid two thousands had latched um, had latched onto. Um, how in-player betting and, and online betting had really taken off, and the imperative there within within that sector was at that point absolutely speed, not necessarily over accuracy, but if there was a trade-off, it was going to be speed over accuracy. Um, it, by its very nature, the the, the the Opta method was was driven by collecting more, collecting depth, and and and, and the accuracy that came with that. Having started out as a post-match endeavour. Speed wasn't the imperative. It, it was going to become an imperative as you as we transition through the sectors. But actually, that's a funny one because you would think that pro zone it was more speed, but you would be thinking that the depth would you know it would be the clubs that would like to find depth in their data and the media that would prioritize speed versus depth of analysis at least to begin with, right? Well, pro, I mean, pro, pro zone um, as a, as a separate company, they were. They, they were they were collecting deep data, but yeah, arguably not as deep as Opta. And 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 a lot of their thinking as a as a provider was was you know layers of software and provision over the top to help the clubs. I mean, the clubs will come on to it. I'm sure you know in football and certain other sports haven't really invested in data and analytics um, e- even until the last decade, really. And and you know even back then, actually, I remember that the rugby um, the rugby teams and 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 rugby generally was. To me, it felt more advanced than football in terms of its data um, endeavors. So, so Prozone were, were, were focusing on depth, um, but thinking more about solutions for the pro market and not really thinking about how to how that data could manifest itself into into media. Um, as I said, Running Ball was doing it very explicitly for betting, and, and Opta was was you know was just sound, and the guys within the business were just sat on an incredible volume of data that had never been seen before, and that's where they had that you know that burning passion to i guess use that data to to tell stories that that as i say were new stories really um and the, you know the editorial team the, the the guys in that opta business when i joined um you know in terms of putting context around the information um making sure we, we the strap line was the beauty in the detail you know it was there was so much volume of stuff there, but it needed to be curated and finessed to the point where it was going to be interesting. And we were determined, we were determined not to just throw this information out. And, mm-hmm. you know, we wanted to encourage certainly media in the first instance to make sense of what it was we'd, we'd captured. Yeah. Interesting. And running ball, just getting back to running ball, was that the technology that allowed you to follow one player with a pencil on top of a tablet to be able to measure the distance that was you know, being ran by one of the athletes? No, 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 no. So that's, that, you know, that's even more recent. So um, you think about um, tracking technologies and yeah. the, the tracking businesses. Well, I'm going back now. I can't even remember the early ones, but, you know, Trackab, which is a, a Karen Higo business, um, yeah. Sportview, um, Sportview, which is part of uh, Stats, um, you know, these tracking companies, um, Venetrack, I think was a company back in the day. Um, but these were the companies that were, were were following the players um, using optical uh, setup, and um, and that was able to initially, you know, to some extent, track uh, speed of movement and, and things like that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's funny because that was just one. I remember the halftime shows on Canal Plus, which is 
obviously one of the best broadcasters and who always had the sports rights um, in France. And it was just that one person that was actually gathering that. And uh, I remember they had a position that was called a screamer to announce some important information so that they would get some sort of data points that they would try to transcript afterwards as well as possible in the main show. Um, but it was so bespoke. It's, it's crazy to see how much um, the industry has evolved. Well, well, well listen, it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's a good example. It's a really good example of one of the things that we were seeing um, maybe a decade ago now in broadcast or in media use where information that was coming into into the public domain that didn't still really tell you anything so so capturing the movement of a player or the um the the the, the amount of distance they've run and or, or the speed the top speed i mean it, it, a lot of that information now is finding itself into broadcast um but it's been done now with a purpose whether the producers are teeing up the talent to talk about that stuff because there's a narrative behind it about you know how a players or, or a team's working for the manager or not working for the manager and you know again when i remember it in those early stages it was like oh great a system can capture that now let's throw it on the screen with a sponsor's logo and yeah. you know there's a value chain there of sorts but the value chain is is a very explicit commercial one. Look how smart we are with our tech. What's the fan? What's the what's the what's the you know what's the guy who's actually watching it? What do they get out of that? Well, if there's no context to it, then you know. I mean, I've played a lot of football. I still don't. I didn't know necessarily how far I would have run in a game, and I didn't know whether Messi was running further than me or not. You know. Yeah. Uh, so so listen, yeah. I think um, I think all this data that's 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 was available then and, and and is available now. You know, context is king. Um, and so interesting. So, and just taking a, a step back in, in the previous, on the previous question, you said that, um, Opta was originally mainly created with the idea of selling data to media, to the media industry. And, but how early did you guys see the full bigger picture of all the betting piece of all the, uh, sports pro training piece? Like, was that, did that arrive as you grew or was it always in the, you know, back of your head? Yeah. Developing the industry separately. Yeah. So, so it was definitely always there as a, as a, as a, as an opportunity. I mean, the, the, the business that I walked into in 2009, 2010, it had its fingers in every pie. You know, it was trying to be a provider to betting. It was trying to be a provider to media and pro. It, it, it was, as I said, the, the default position of what it was trying to do in terms of the, the editorial team and the marketing team, they were focusing in on media, but it didn't mean to say that commercially, as, as you're a, you know, a small-ish business, you know, you're trying to find your place and you are going to try and branch out into these other sectors that you knew wanted the data, but you didn't necessarily have the machine behind you supporting that. So it was left to people like myself commercially and others to go, well, we've got this information for betting, but we don't quite know how to position and sell what we've got to that sector so betting as a as a great example um you know i i, I remember i remember the you know we were we were we were trying to talk to bookmakers about this this amazing deep um data that we had that we were then collecting in real time mm -hmm. but essentially trying to sell that to a, an industry that already had what it needed from a speed point of view from running ball and a couple of others at the time like we you know, inherently the product wasn't fit for purpose, but I but but we were 
we were obsessed at the time with capturing some of that betting dollar and and and, and looking at it and go well what can we do with our business to 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 make a success of ourselves in, in that industry and it seemed like we were we were we were we were trying to be something we weren't in a way that was going to undermine everything else so so to actually compete for that that um in, in that space we were going to need to make our entire collection system and operation much much quicker and that just wasn't feasible mm-hmm. by then but we had stuff that others didn't so we had data for modeling um and what I mean by that is, you know, when you are creating prices or you are trying to, um, if you're in a trading room within a bookmaker, you are trying to make sure that, um, you know, you've got your best possible odds and, and you're making as much margin as you can. Like the data that we had was telling a story of a game. So s- smart guys, analytical guys could get a hold of that rich history of in the database and say, well, look, you know, maybe in real time, the outcome of this game is more likely to go this way than that way. And they were, you know, for me, they were, they were first real, um, group of analysts that were were using our data for commercial gain um, in, in in terms of in, in terms of u- that use case. So, so you know, having having realised what it was we could offer to that sector, once you then flip the narrative of our sales prop into it's about that and it's about modelling and 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 actually even then ten years ago we were we were talking to the bookies about player prop markets and player versus player betting which again we see now it, you know it's great that, that a decade having having sort of pushed it um it's now happening uh, to the to the masses but um but yeah so so we 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 definitely wanted to to play in each sector we we were definitely um uh, most successful in media back then um the pro side of it just to touch on that i mean we we did that slightly differently so opta pro is a subsidiary within the opta business and we created that very separate enterprise within the group because having created a media brand, um, the Opta brand is something that that was kind of synonymous with with media, um, and you know fans of, of, of football started to pick up on the Opta brand, but the credibility that it it didn't have in pro was 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 a problem. So, yeah. you know the 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 pro guys at that time are the guys who we were trying to sell to within the football clubs would often I think think of it as a kind of a throwaway media play thing rather than something that would help them do their jobs by players do analysis um, tactical uh, so 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 we just had to think outside the box in terms of how we attack that market so we as I say we separated out um, a group of guys who were who were absolutely um, you know embedded within the, the pro world um, and we um, we 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 sort of went one step further as well. So often Opta would just be a raw material provider and an ingredient brand, if you like, and we would let the market evolve products and solutions over the top of the content. With Pro, we we decided that both to accelerate the opportunity for ourselves, but also to get the buying we needed. We needed to 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 build some of those products ourselves. So we built some more tools and, and things like that. Yeah, that's actually interesting because a lot of what the VCs would suggest a startup to do is actually go for one sector, really nail that, and then start looking at the bigger ones, which is ultimately what it sounds like you guys were doing. So that would be definitely the best practice and takeaway for for those organizations trying a little bit of everything, put a lot of effort in that one industry where you really want to be the best and then find the right way of going about the other verticals because there will be a time for it. Um, yeah, I, I, like I say, going 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 to everyone for everything. We, we I, 
Opta wasn't an overnight success. Um, you know, it, it, it took 15 years to get to a point where it made money, but it was, and over that period of time, it would have learned um, to, to be more focused and more and more um, aware of what it was it could offer. And I think in those last kind of three or four years prior to the acquisition by Perform, we'd really worked out, you know, what it was we could offer the different sectors. So whilst we played in different sectors, we weren't trying to be everything in each sector. We, we'd found our niche and we, we went for it and we were good at it. It's crazy. And that's a good point because I wasn't doing the math properly, but it did take 15 years for Opta to be a proper business because Opta really boomed in 2010, 2011. Yeah, there was a, there was a kind of a, a tipping point around then. Um, and, 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 and I do think it was the momentum that the business had built itself, um, you know, um, in many ways, but also... You know the direction of travel for data, you know, generally in, in in life, from being something that was a bit geeky and a bit nerdy to to something that you know clearly had a huge amount of value. Um, that that wind of change was blowing through. You had the Moneyball thing, which you know, for those of us yeah. that lived through that, we we say that a little bit hesitantly now because, like, the Moneyball thing absolutely mattered in the context of of people seeing and understanding what the opportunity through data was, but. It was that wasn't in itself a, a, a eureka moment for certainly for football or European sports. Um, so there was a few things. I, th I think actually one other thing I remember the guy saying at the time was the 2010 World Cup was a bit of a watershed because at that point social media had really started to really take a hold, and I think for sports fans and people who wanted to comment on sport and data generally, they were looking at what media was doing in, in the mainstream. And, and it wasn't some of the analysis and some of the graphical visualizations that you could then tell through data. None of that was really coming into mainstream media, but you had this real groundswell, almost like a think tank through the, the I guess the Twitterati and, 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 you know, that group of people who, who really could, I guess, have a bit more of a, an opinion and a vision that they could express in air. And, and it sort of supported what we were saying as a B2B company going like, look, you know, hey, media, you can do more than you are at the minute. And, um, you know, let us help you on that journey. So, so yeah, it was a, that was kind of a bit of a, a watershed around that time. And so there's obviously the traction you built for yourself, the maturity of the sport and the, the media industry and obviously social media allowing everybody to have access to a lot of information pushed the limits of what had to be told on television, on air, because otherwise everybody became knowers versus only the, the anchor people actually knew about the sport extensively because they had access to that information. Um, but beyond that, what is the element you would say made Opta successful that maybe people don't see as much, uh, but that was a key ingredient in the way, in, in what drove the further success, the future success? Yeah. Um, so, Yeah, the, the, I mean, the, the story that often gets told with Opta is, is that story of contextualizing the data and, and, and you know, Opta Joe as a, as, a, as, a, as a thing, you know, as, a, as, a, as a, an entity in its own right. I mean, that was a, a great move by the guys. Um, again, I don't know if it was necessarily expected to do as well as it did when we started throwing. I mean, we were throwing basically stats that we had lying around not being used on the, you know, on Twitter and, uh, and it took on a life of its own. So that everyone kind of gets that and, and knows that about Opta. Um, I mean, thinking about it, I'm slightly biased because I, I come at it from a commercial point of view. But you know, the the, the growth that the Opta experience from from you know first starting to to, to make money uh, through to selling the business as part of um, Perform uh, in 2019, like 
we quadrupled revenues under the perform ownership. Um, you know, we, I think we went from around, I think, I think we had maybe kind of 10, up to 10 customers in those early days that were maybe spending a hundred grand a year. By the time we, by the time we sold the business, there was a hundred euros and, and some spending, you know, seven figures. So like a lot of that growth was incubated through the businesses. It wasn't new customer acquisition. It was, it was a lot of customers that started with us on that journey that we built and grew. And and that doesn't just happen, right? You've got to have like some kind of coherent commercial mid to long-term plan. Um, and I think, I think the commercial guys in the business and bearing, when I say the commercial guys, I don't just mean the sales team because everybody was selling, you know, in their own way. Um, but the way in which the teams work together in that period pre-perform uh, was, was great in terms of building that momentum and putting things in place that, that would allow us to unlock future growth. And then obviously when you went into perform, it was just a much bigger organization, um, a, a much more fast paced uh, um, agenda generally, but you know, no quote was given to sales guys in terms of showing growth and, and whatever. And, and to do that in a way that, you know, had to, had to work alongside lots of other commercial opportunities that Perform had. You know, the commercial successes of of of, of the guys was um, was 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 really was really important. Clearly, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's a funny thing because Opta wasn't necessarily sold that extensively as a big sales organization, but more on an organization that capitalized on 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 yeah, using the data right, but. You do, you did, you guys did put all the ingredients of making it successful. So good account management to grow the actual accounts that were important, but also growth in volume of customers, uh, which is hard to actually pair both uh, in terms of the way you structure it. And that was also the marketing kind of value creation through so- social media, which was pretty innovative back in 2010. Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, the, the consultative selling side of it. Um, Again, a, a fairly well understood concept now, but but in 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 the context of what we were doing at the start, um, it was very much about you know how how is it this content's going to add value to your organisation, and if you are if you are dealing with something that's new that's unproven as we were content sports content you know content is king was well known and understood, but not necessarily our content. Our content was niche data that people, like 2010, we were questioning whether we should be collecting passes live in a football match because no one was using it. Could you imagine like what the football data world would look like 10 years on had we not carried on doing it? Like we knew that there would be a use for that visually and whatever. So, but you had to go into organizations and sell that vision. And and I just remember, uh, well, we're on the point of kind of where you unlock that, um, commercial success like often you would think that the way to go in would be to talk about amazing kind of front-end uses for the content that end users would engage in you know actually oftentimes it was about going in and showing how this kind of stuff would save money or improve production processes i mean you know sam from things we've done together in the past you know often it's the metadata it's the information that sits behind the headline data you know how the time codes the xy coordinates these are all things that unlock product innovation opportunities for end users but but you need to be quite intimate as a sales guys with what that vision could be and then impart that on 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 your 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 customer base so yeah it's um it's um it was a it was a it was a a really important step for the business to be able to sort of educate our own guys to be able to go out and, and, and tell that story 
Yeah, that marketing education is definitely something that's important for all industries. Um, and so now that you're out of the business for, <laughs> for a year, what do you miss about it? And what do you not miss, actually, also? Oh, um, yeah. I, you know, I've, I've kind of, I've been a bit suggestive of this on the call, but, you know, when I started, it was about my passion for sport. And I, you know, I remember those first few weeks in the industry where, I was astonished that something that sort of passed through my hands or, you know, something that I wrote or, or, or a match score that came into my database that the next day was going to be seen by millions of people in the UK in the newspaper, right? Yeah. Fast forward 20 years and you're Opta and you're the official partner for World Rugby and the Premier League and La Liga. And, you know, in, in theory, as the official supplier of that content, um, You, you, I was going to say you should be the only source of that raw material. Clearly, that's not the case. But but you know that that material, that content, is 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 the starting point of um, of, of of something that you know the world globally is going to see and rely upon for different use cases. And um, and the thing I miss actually is you know the fear that you would you would you would screw that up. You know because and, and 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 there's the, there's the commercial fear and there's the, the the making your customers happy. But I just remember the sports, you know, the sports fan at the end of the journey or the sports better or the fantasy player or the, you know, whoever it is, you know, it's, a, it's such an important part of society, right, sport? So so that responsibility and that accountability to people's enjoyment, whatever, that that's something where when I've sat this year, particularly kind of on the sidelines looking in and seeing how important that has been to, to bringing some normality back, you, knowing that you're a, a key part of that is Say if you if you work for Sky or you work for Google, you are showcasing that to a huge audience. But it's just your audience. When you're the source for all of those big players, it's a, it's a, a fairly big uh, pressure cooker that you're in. So so I, I missed that, um, and I also really enjoyed it. Um, um, yeah. But it is also nice. Thing that, like, mentioning Google in that, I don't feel like I don't know. But there's there's probably very few people inside Google that actually feel like they're bringing a change at the Google level kind of things. Whereas I'm pretty sure at the Opta and then stats perform level, that sense of ownership of that data must be so much bigger than the, you know, that feel of belonging of being in a huge group like Google. Yeah. Well, maybe, I mean, you know, the time that I worked with the Google guys, they, they, you know, they, they care about what they're, they're, they're putting out there and, um, you know, a business like that and not just Google, but, A, a few others. I mean, you get a real sense of that global um, necessity for what we did because if you think about it, you know, again, the methods that we employ inevitably you start, you know, with, with the, the 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 premier blue ribbon events in terms of your collection depth and coverage, and then over many years you start to bring that to to the long tail of sport and long tail of competitions. But you know, when you work with a company like a Google or an ESPN or a, um, you know, any of those um, truly global organizations. You know, you, you've got to pay as much attention to, you know, a remote league in, in Asia as you do to the Premier League in terms of their audience. It, it, it matters just as much to them. And um, they kept us honest, you know, when it came to making sure that we could we could show equity across the across the range of sports that we uh, we covered. So, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I, like I say, I miss I miss all those things. Um, but I also, you know, I, I've enjoyed being able to sort of just um You know, watch sport on a Saturday afternoon and not have the fear that something <laughs> might go wrong. <laughs> yeah, that monitoring piece of our lives. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
definitely. That's a funny thing with live. Like now we're live every Sunday night on Canal Plus. Uh, <laughs> and it's kind of like, I'm enjoying the match, but also checking every you know every step of the way that it's working on every device. Yes. Yeah. Uh, nice. And so data got you excited for the last 10 to 15 years. What's exciting to you with the upcoming 15 ones? Um, well, I, listen, I, 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 I think I've said this to you before. I think we're kind of at the end of the beginning. Um, I, I, if that makes some sense, and I'll try and explain it a little bit. I, I think, I think a lot of what has allowed data to get to this point in terms of the, the collection method and the technologies and the infrastructure, um, I think has been great. And, and, and obviously, um, you know, Opta and other companies have, have done a phenomenal job with what has been possible. But we talked a little bit, I mentioned fleetingly computer vision and other methods of capturing data, um, be that wearable, um, you know, information, uh, derived information, biometric information. You know, listen, the point is there's a whole heap of data out there across every sport that's just not being captured. Or if it is being captured, it's not quite fit for purpose for the use cases that the let's call them the more traditional methods are able to do, but that'll evolve and that will change. And, and I do think that, like I said, I, I think there's an, there's a next wave of opportunity that comes with new types of data and all those things we've talked about before in terms of how do you bring that together, commercialize it, contextualize it, editorialize it, you know, all those things, visual, th those things, you know, that data needs to find itself into the, into the ecosystem. And I think there's, you know, I think there's clearly um, there's still that data piece that very much excites you. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, there's there's a long way to go in the in the in the, in the story of data in sport. Nice, interesting. Um, and on that note, having been on the side of the small tech company that provides for big organizations that sells to big organizations, which side of the fence do you actually want to be? Do you want to be in the adventurous one or do you want to be in the one that capitalizes on those new methods because you know so much about them uh you know i'm i'll, I'll keep an open mind sam um I, 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 listen I, you can probably tell I, you know i enjoy that kind of pioneering you know entrepreneurial phase of, of, of opportunity and growth um you know the, the bigger organizations being part of perform where you know, you can or discern in the end where you can go into any rights holder and talk about your agenda without having to kind of do the hard yards to 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 to, to earn the right to be in that room. You know that th there's benefits of that. I mean, I it's a bit altruistic. I've said this a couple of times recently. That you know, I genuinely want whatever happens next with sport and sports data to to really again you know allow sport to benefit from it. So yep. yes, I want as a commercial guy, people to benefit from this commercially. And I want fans to benefit from what it is, but you know, sport has an opportunity with its investment in different technologies, you know, part of it through necessity for production reasons or integrity reasons or health and safety reasons. All of these investments um, can be leveraged for a data opportunity that, that, that bleeds into it. So I think, um, I think when you, when you think about um, kind of, what I do next, you know, I'd like, I'd, I'd just like to be, you know, a part of that, a, a part of that agenda, really. Um, um, and it's, you know, that was as I came towards the end of my time within Perform and Opta and Stats Perform, it was increasingly kind of that rights holder um, environment that I was, I was playing in on a day-to-day -day basis. So I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So you would be, you could be for 
capturing and creating more data as well as just using it in a better commercial way on the other side of the fence, Um, which is, I guess, what every entrepreneur and every person in the industry thinks about how, you know, like, do they want to do more and do the kind of uh, entrepreneurship journey or do they want to be able to help and capitalize well on whatever is being created on the other side? Um, And so kind of a basic question, but what do you think is going to be key in the five next years in the sports industry? Where do you, where do you see a shift potentially? And what do you think is going to be fundamentally different in the upcoming five years? Um, so I, I guess if I, I try and say that in a sort of micro macro level, I mean, from a, a micro perspective, I get, we've talked about it a lot. Like it's going to be new data, new, new ways of collecting data. Um, there's, there's going to be new product opportunities off the back of that new stories. Um, I guess, I guess on a macro level, again, we've touched on it, you know, the rights holders and the influence that a rights holder can affect, you know, that, that proactivity in this, in this category of sports data. Um, I think, you know, for, for 20 years now, there's been many and various different rights strategies or strategies by rights holders and sporting federations in terms of how to engage with the opportunity that sports data provides. Some it's, Sometimes it's been explicitly commercial, sometimes being more on a production level or, or you know, um, an integrity level. So I think um, I think the growing, I'm not going to say necessarily the growing influence of, of sporting federations, but the, the, the growing interest, um, it's there now, it's been peaked, but I don't think necessarily, um, certainly across, across um, many sports, that there's a real maturity to how that engagement is between commercial enterprise and, 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 and rights holder. There's, there's, there's some legal challenges along the way for, for everyone. Um, I, I won't bore people with that too much, but, you know, ownership of data, and I, and I don't necessarily just mean ownership of data that's captured now. I mean ownership of player information. It, it's well understood that that's, that's a, a hurdle. But it, it's easy to, I mentioned hurdle, you know, barriers that might get in the way to, to um to make people's lives difficult in the in the near term they will be resolved you know those hurdles will be you know people will get over them and um and, and i do think that as i said that that will um that will be a big part of the next few years actually um as as as, as this whole space matures even more and do you think that sports federations can bring a push on what is needed on their side of their uh, of the fence or do you think that um has to come through new tech startups that come up with new concepts and new ways of leveraging what's happening on the field. I, I do think it's a little bit of both, but I, I would say it's far more balanced and even-handed now than it than it than it used to be. Um, you know, we you mentioned to me the other day. I think that you know often the the, the rights holders, sporting federation, move particularly slowly relative to the startups, and that's obvious, right? But but I, I do think there's been that influx over over recent past when you've been around like I have, you've seen the dynamic of some of those organizations change and, and the profile of some of the guys involved within you know, um, you know, sporting federations, whether it's through digital transformation or you know just looking across sort of the, the new wave of broadcasters and, and bringing people like that into, you know, bringing people from outside of sport into, into sporting federations has definitely created some entrepreneurial spirit there that, that perhaps wasn't there before. Um, at times, and again, if you if you look to the US, um, 
think about how those sports have, have truly engaged with the betting industry in the last few years as a consequence of regulatory change. You know, that is that is pretty symptomatic, I think, of, 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 of how rights holders around the world should be thinking. Not just, I don't mean like, look, it's just about betting, but having a, a real awareness of, of the value that um, is created from their sport you know whether whether it's their data or whether it's the commercial enterprise data. That we can have that debate another time. But the point is, that there's a value prop and a, sorry, a value chain there that's 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 well understood now by the rights holders. And I think um, you know their engagement in that and their activity in that will will continue to grow and grow. Yeah, it's a tough one because yeah, European organizations are definitely moving slower or waiting for the US to move before moving also on their side, and in parallel. The NBA, which is probably the most advanced organizations in terms of rights distribution, internationalization, value they're creating around the data and, you know, just the global marketing effort done around the league. And yet Adam Silver is still saying that, you know, the way NBA is consumed still looks like black and white TV um, when, 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 when he looks at Twitch and that's that organization. So it's kind of like, yeah, you're optimistic and When you look back, you do see a lot of evolution between, you know, 10 years ago and now. Uh, but when you're living it, you feel like there could definitely be an extra push uh, by, you know, you have to understand on the startup side of things that can, things can't go as fast as you want. But also on the, you know, uh, federation side of things or um, rights holder side of things, it does feel like sometimes there could be a bit of a, bigger push to bring change people are kind of starting to put it together but there's still some work to be done yeah 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 without a doubt i know i i, I yeah I, i can't sit here and say that i've seen this you know huge shift from the right source to the point where they, they think and act like the startups that you and i deal with on a on a regular yeah. basis so um yeah. but to be fair actually it, it is also partially true because organizations like bundesliga are actually pushing the limits of what can be done in multiple ways and have are coming up with creative ways of structuring their organization. So I guess we're getting there. Yes. Yeah, slowly but surely. <laughs> Terrific. Anything to add, Andrew? No, I think that's good, Sam. I mean, nice to nice to be able to, uh, you know, catch up on the sports data stuff. I mean, one of the things that the audience um, should know, obviously getting involved with you guys, it is giving me that chance to kind of explore things that are not just – just sports data you know it's all the different touch points that sports data has so uh getting back to my roots and just talking to you about about the nitty-gritty of capture uh i don't think we've done that before so it's been enjoyable yeah very nice and it's uh i'm sure the audience will like the entrepreneurial journey and the deep dive into into data more extensively which is obviously still a topic that is that you're very passionate about yeah absolutely terrific Well, thanks, everyone. I hope you really liked having Andrew as much as we did. Um, as you as you know, always like your support. Don't forget to like, comment, share with people around you if, if uh, you believe our, our sessions are interesting. And uh, look forward to seeing you again on the Le Corner International episode very soon. Thanks, Andy. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Sam. Le Corner.